In this weekend's episode, three segments from this past week's Washington Journal. First, there were no legal consequences for President Biden in his mishandling of classified documents, but there was plenty of political fallout for the president in the newly released special counsel's report. Axios political reporter Aaron Doherty gives us the rundown. Then the other big story in Washington this week, the high-stakes Supreme Court case on former President Trump's eligibility to appear on the Colorado ballot. We examine the legal and constitutional questions with Ilya Soman of the George Mason University Antonin Scalia Law School and Josh Blackman of the South Texas College of Law. Plus, it's been one week since the U.S. began military strikes against Iran-backed proxies in the Mideast. We speak with national security expert and retired Navy Captain Jean Moran about what was accomplished. Hi, this is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team. And I'm Sean, a C-SPAN producer, and we'd like to tell you about Word for Word, our evening newsletter that I write each day. If you follow politics and policy, we think you'll also like reading Word for Word. Think of it as your evening briefing on Washington's most important stories delivered straight to your inbox. Find out what happened on Capitol Hill, the White House, and see video highlights. Join our informed community. Subscribe to Word for Word today at cspan.org slash connect. Go deeper on the day's important stories. Subscribe now to Word for Word at cspan.org slash connect. Thank you. Now, Axios political reporter Aaron Doherty about the details of the special counsel report on President Biden's handling of classified documents. So special counsel Robert Hur um, did not pursue charges against President Biden. Um, he, he The report concluded that Hur's office felt that the evidence does not establish Mr. Biden's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, Hur wrote in the report that he believes a jury would find reasonable doubt at trial. Um, and in part, he wrote that Biden would come across um, not only as sympathetic, but um, her, which was a common theme throughout the report, also hit on um, President Biden's memory. Um, and he wrote that President Biden, um, you know, was not capable of the willfulness required to convict. So basically, her concluded that there was no legal basis to pursue these charges. And remind us of Robert Hur's background and how he came to be appointed as special counsel. Right. So Robert Hur um, is a former U.S. attorney who was nominated by former President Trump. Um, he was appointed by Attorney General Merrick Garland in January of 2023 to investigate Biden's documents. Um, he conducted a year, um, an investigation over the course of a year, um, interviewing President Biden himself and dozens and dozens of other witnesses to um, conduct this very, uh, to, to to produce this sprawling report into President Biden's handling of classified documents. And what kind of classified uh, information did the president have with him? Yeah, so the report found that the bulk of the documents that were found fall into two categories, um, two types of classified materials. Um, the first were documents relating to military and foreign policy in Afghanistan um, when, from when President Biden was vice president um, with former President Barack Obama. And then the second type of classified documents that were um, kind of found in the report um, were notebooks that President Biden used throughout his presidency, um, which included, you know, a combination of personal notes that he had taken, um, meeting notes and other writings. And how confidential, I mean, how sensitive were these uh, documents to national security? 
Yeah, so Robert Herr wrote that in the report that um, he thought that the, you know, he did not pursue charges against President Biden, but he did write that they, the, the documents that in President Biden's office and private home did um, did pose a risk to national security. But again, um, he did not. The biggest difference between, um, you know, this case and former President Trump's case, who has faced criminal charges over his handling of classified documents, is that President Trump, former President Trump, um, obstructed the government's efforts to get the documents back. And the, that was um, that was mentioned in the special counsel's report. Why was it um, mentioned, and what did he say in the report about it? Yeah, so Robert Herr made very clear, um, and, and numerous different on numerous different. Uh, pages in the report that there were differences between former President Trump's handling of classified documents and President Biden's. Um, the biggest difference, according to Robert Herr, was you know President Biden's cooperation with the investigations. And the Biden White House has repeatedly said and tried to you know draw stark contrast with former President Trump's handling of the documents. Biden, immediately after um, his personal lawyers, immediately after finding the documents, notified um, the archives of their existence. And so he has been cooperative throughout the process. And so Robert Herr um, really kind of emphasized that during his in his report. And President Biden himself um, pointed that out yesterday during remarks. He said that he was glad that Robert Herr noted the differences between President Biden's handling and former President Trump's. And the report also so, as you said, included characterizations of his memory. Um, what details did it include about that? Yeah, so while the conclusions of the report were a legal victory for President Biden, you know, there were no charges recommended. It's um, the fallout of the report, you know, has seemed that the, the political fallout is is larger. So Robert Herr repeatedly made references and um, notes about President Biden's memory um, and pointed to specific details that President Biden seemed to forget or seemed shaky on during his interviews with investigators. One particular line that Robert Herr included was that President Biden seemed to forget the the day that his son, Beau Biden, died. Um, and we saw, you know, so President Biden spoke um, on Thursday night in a very in an unplanned uh, speech to the American public. And he shot back at many of the characterizations of his memory in that were outlined in the report and specifically against that Beau Biden line saying that, you know, it was egregious that that was included. And how dare he bring that up? That was Aaron Doherty, political reporter for Axios. Next, an examination of the constitutional and legal questions in the Supreme Court case on former President Trump's eligibility to appear on the Colorado ballot. Ilya Soman of the George Mason University Antonin Scalia Law School and Josh Blackman of the South Texas College of Law participated in the discussion. Mr. Blackman, starting with you, uh, where do you stand on this case? Uh, so I filed a brief on behalf of Professor Seth Barrett-Tillman. I've also written a lot of articles on this. I think that the court should not disqualify Mr. Trump from the ballot. Why? Uh, a couple big reasons. The first is very technical. Um, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment only applies to a person that took a certain type of oath in a certain position. Uh, the language of the Constitution is that you must take an oath to the Constitution as an officer of the United States. The key word, officer of the United States. And for nearly a decade, I've written this phrase, Officer of the United States refers to appointed positions, 
as people appointed by the president or an agency, not people who are elected, and that this is not referred to the president. Therefore, Section 3 has no bearing on Mr. Trump at all, and this is a position I've taken long before Trump ever came on the scene. Is this a position that you expect the uh, Trump's counsel to, to take today during arguments? Uh, Trump's counsel has adopted their positions or lead arguments, number one, in their brief. I think that'll be the primary way they're going to try to win this case. Elias Soman, uh, your view on this case in general, where do you stand? I believe the Supreme Court should affirm the decision of the Colorado Supreme Court, which they are reviewing, which says that Trump should indeed be disqualified because he engaged in insurrection by instigating and then trying to exploit the attack on the Capitol on January 6, 2021. I also believe that he is, in fact, an officer of the United States or was when he was the president uh, under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, and also that the other hyper-technical arguments that Trump's counsel and others have advanced are also flawed and should be rejected. Explain what you mean by a hyper-technical argument. So there's a whole bunch of ways that Trump's counsel is trying to win this case, all of which are, uh, for the most part, highly counterintuitive uh, and hyper-technical. They're the kind of things uh, that make people dislike lawyers, which doesn't by itself mean they're necessarily wrong, but it should make us suspicious of those kind of arguments. They have the argument that Josh already mentioned, which is that the person who holds the highest office in the federal government is somehow not an officer of the United States, the kind of argument that only a hyper-technical lawyer can believe. Uh, they also have the argument that uh, Section 3 cannot be enforced unless Congress enacts additional legislation uh, to try to enforce it, even though nothing in the text of the 14th Amendment indicates that that is the case. Uh, and they have a number of other technical arguments, such as the argument that I address in my amicus brief, which is the claim that before Trump or anybody could be disqualified for engaging in insurrection, they first have to be convicted under a criminal charge, despite the fact that uh, all of the former Confederates who were disqualified in the immediate aftermath of an amendment, none of them had in fact been convicted of any crimes related to their involvement in the Civil War. Josh Blackman, who has the, the tougher job today? Is it uh, Donald Trump's counsel or is it the counsel arguing on behalf of the, the voters of Colorado? What's unique about this case is in order for the voters to win, they have to arrive at everything. So all the issues that Ilya and I just mentioned, if the court agrees with Trump on any one issue, he's on the ballot. If, for example, the court says the president's not an officer, that Trump did not engage in insurrection, that you need a federal statute, that is a First Amendment defense, if the court accepts any one of those defenses, then Trump wins. So why it, is it set up that way? In order to disqualify someone from the ballot, you have to basically run the table. You have to arrive at everything. And if Trump's tried at any one thing, the court has to say, you know what, the Colorado court made a mistake, we have to reverse, and then Trump goes in the ballot, and that'll probably be the ruling nationwide in all 50 states. Mr. Soman, who's got the tougher job today? I think they're tough in different ways. On the one hand, it's true. Trump has several different possible ways to win, uh, and his opponents have to defeat all of them. Uh, on the other hand, each of those ways that he has uh, are badly flawed arguments in various ways, some of them extremely so, uh, and all of them, with minor exceptions, would set a very dangerous precedent uh, if they were adopted by the court. So uh, you have here one side that does have an advantage in that they have multiple ways to win, and they have an advantage you can argue the court for political reasons might hesitate to uh, you know, allow Trump to be removed from the ballot. On the other hand, our side has the advantage that all the other side's arguments are highly counterintuitive and badly fought. Both of you gentlemen mentioned that you filed briefs in this case. Uh, why? 
and who's allowed to file a brief? How many briefs are there in this case, Mr. Blackman? Well, the phrase is amicus brief, amicus like amigo, meaning friend of the court. And just about anyone in the world can file a brief in front of the Supreme Court. You don't have to get permission anymore to even do it. Uh, I filed a brief with my colleague, Seth Barrett-Tillman. Seth has been writing on this issue since 2006, long before anyone even knew about this issue. And we want to bring to the court's attention how this argument should be presented. Uh, in fact, many of the arguments that Trump has made came straight from our articles and scholarship. This is something that we think the court maybe might want to hear. We'll see what happens today. Mr. Soman, why did you file a brief? Uh, for two reasons. One is, as an academic, I have a long-standing interest in the structure of democracy and constitutional limitations on democracy, including in this case those that try to protect democracy, sometimes against the voters themselves and against voter ignorance and other problems. Second, uh, I thought this argument that uh, I'm addressing in the brief, the argument that there must be a criminal conviction first, uh, it is one that has come up a lot in the public debate and it's come up in the briefs, but it's also pretty weak. Uh, so I thought that I could make a contribution by filing the one amicus brief on our side that is specifically focused on this question. Two law professors with us again this morning, Elia Soman joining us via Zoom, Josh Blackman joining us in studio and taking your phone calls. Uh, and Linda is up first out of Columbus, Ohio. Good morning. Good morning. I, good morning. I just feel that we need to go on and follow the Constitution to straighten out a lot of things that are happening in America that are negative. These judges need to get together and just do the law as it has been written and follow the law. And Trump, he needs to go home now. His time is up. Mr. Blackman, we need to follow the law as it's been written. The caller says, why was Section 3 of the 14th Amendment written back in 1868? Well, I agree. We should absolutely follow the law. I think it's, 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 a, good, it's a good sentiment. Um, <clears throat> Section 3 arose from the Civil War. And after the Civil War, there were questions of how do we handle former Confederates. And there were different proposals. One proposal would have said we're going to disenfranchise Confederates, that they can't vote. Another was said that uh, former Confederates can't hold any government position. There are a lot of proposals. Ultimately, we have something of a compromise that certain Confederate officials cannot hold certain governmental positions. It doesn't apply to everyone in all contexts. And the challenge is figuring out what the law means. So I agree the argument is somewhat technical, but when you're knocking some off the ballot, you have to follow the strictures of the law. And sometimes it may not be the most intuitive to people uh, listening at home, but I think there's a lot going for the position that we've advanced. Did those who wrote the 14th Amendment and Section 3 specifically, would they have been okay with a, a former Confederate running for president? So there are two issues, right? One, could a former Confederate run for president? That's actually not the argument we're making. This is a, the Jefferson Davis horrible. And, and I actually think there's some argument that people would not have wanted Jeff Davis to be president. So we're not making that argument. <clears throat> we're making a different argument that if a person took only one oath, like Donald Trump, as president of the United States, would he have been an officer of the United States? And to be frank, Every former president had held some other government position, whether it's a general or a governor or, or a senator or a member of Congress. So there's no reason for them to have even thought about a person who took one oath, only one oath as president. It wasn't on their minds at all. Mr. Soman? Yeah, so I think uh, the Supreme Court has said several times, including in a well-known opinion by <clears throat> Justice Scalia, that when we interpret the words in the Constitution, we should interpret them in accordance with their ordinary meaning as understood by ordinary people at the time. When an ordinary person sees a phrase like officer of the United States, uh, they're going to intuitively and correctly think that surely includes the person who holds the highest and most powerful office in the land. In addition, it just doesn't make any sense to say that 
if you were a low-level federal bureaucrat or a low-level military officer and you engage in insurrection, then you're disqualified under Section 3. Uh, but if you're a president and you engage in insurrection, hallelujah, you get a free pass. Uh, an insurrectionist president uh, gets an exemption. Uh, that is highly counterintuitive. It doesn't make any sense. It's not the kind of thing that an ordinary person would think uh, upon reading the amendment either uh, in 1868 at the time that it was ratified or today. Uh, it is only the kind of you know hyper-technical argument that is not generally accessible under ordinary meaning. And it also makes little sense in terms of uh, you know what this amendment is supposed to do. Uh, yes, uh, at that time, the former presidents generally had also held other government offices, uh, but uh, that couldn't necessarily be counted on. And there certainly were prominent people uh, who could run for office or had run for office, even though uh, they hadn't uh, you know, previously held uh, an, another uh, sufficiently important office to be disqualified. Who gets it to decide what an ordinary person is? So that's a good question. Uh, and there, the constitutional theorists have different views on this, uh, but I think the usual assumption is that an ordinary person is just simply an ordinary member of the general public at the time uh, who, you know, if you had put before him or her the text uh, of uh, Section 3, uh, you know, would they think that uh, it includes the highest office in the land or not? And I think the answer uh, is that they would think that because surely the person who holds the single most powerful office is an officer of the United States, and surely they also wouldn't think that it makes any sense to give an insurrectionist former president uh, a free pass while he would disqualify some low-level quirk uh, who did the same thing and by engaging in insurrection. That was Ilya Solman of the George Mason University Antonin Scalia Law School and Josh Blackman of the South Texas College of Law. Next, a conversation with national security expert and retired Navy Captain Gene Moran on the recent U.S. military strikes on Iranian-backed targets in the Mideast. You were 24 years in the U.S. Navy, uh, several of those years as a Navy captain of a destroyer and a cruiser. Can you start with your assessment of how U.S. strikes have gone so far? I think we've certainly changed the dynamic. Uh, it's unfortunate that it took a couple of months for us to uh, reach the decision that we needed to change the dynamic. I think it should be noted that the forward deployed naval forces have just done a tremendous job in reacting to a uh, pretty uh, unusual situation with these uh, uh, Houthi rebels uh, firing all kinds of uh, missiles and drones at uh, commercial ships and U.S. ships. This is a, a degree of intensity that we've not seen ever in the Red Sea. And for the uh, U.S. Navy to have uh, essentially knocked down every threat, uh, quite impressive. Uh, however, it, it shouldn't come to that, and uh, we should be looking to shoot the archer as opposed to shoot at all the arrows. The uh, Wall Street Journal is reporting that uh, U.S. drone strikes have killed the Iraq militia leader behind the deadly attack on that American base in Jordan. How significant is that? I, I think it does matter. Uh, we have seen in the past when we have gone after leaders of ideologies that there are more people behind them, and uh, that, that uh, leadership void will be filled. Uh, it's just a matter of time. And talk about kind of that balance that military leaders have to, um, have to think about uh, when they try to thread that needle between responding and not escalating. 
Right. So what, what you're seeing is a, uh, a broader effort to use other tools besides military to try to address what's happening. Uh, certainly diplomatic, uh, we pay attention to uh, intelligence information, uh, there are economic factors involved. Those four things work together. And uh, unfortunately, just in recent weeks, uh, the military uh, part has taken the, the forefront. Uh, nobody in the military wants that to be the case. However, uh, you know, peacetime rules of engagement and uh, the law of the sea allow us to uh, defend ourselves uh, when threatened. And we should expect a right of free commercial shipping through international waters and through the Red Sea. We're, we're seeing a balance of, of diplomacy, as I said. Unfortunately, in some ways, uh, for a time, our lead diplomat is the CIA director. Uh, I don't think it should be that way. I think we see the Secretary of State uh, performing shuttle diplomacy admirably, uh, but but it's uh, this, we didn't just get here overnight, and it will take time to unwind this a little bit. And the Houthi rebels have continued their attacks. Uh, Pat Ryder, who's the Pentagon spokesman, uh, Major General Pat Ryder, I should say, was asked about that. I'm going to play that uh, portion and then have you respond to it. Pat, there have been three attacks by Iranian proxy forces in Syria since Friday. Um, you say that the assessment is that the strikes on Friday night had good effects. Um, how can you say that when there's three more attacks? What will the response be? And are the troops at those bases, those outposts, allowed to leave the base and to pursue those who are firing rockets and drones at the bases? Yeah, so a couple of things, Jennifer. So first of all, on, on your last comment, uh, our forces will always maintain the inherent right of self-defense. So if they need to take appropriate actions to, to defend themselves, they will, and you've seen us do that in the past. Uh, in terms of attacks in Iraq and Syria, since we took these strikes on Friday, I'm actually only tracking two incidents. Uh, there was one attack on Saturday, um, February the 3rd, that was two rockets that were fired at MSS Euphrates in Syria uh, with no injuries or damage reported. Uh, and then I'm aware of one yesterday, February 4th. This was a, a one-way attack drone that landed several kilometers from MSS uh, Green Village. Um, also in Syria, again, no reported U.S. injuries or damage to those facilities. Um, again, the, the strikes that we took on Friday uh, were in response, as I highlighted in my topper, to the attacks on U.S. forces at Jordan. Uh, and again, we'll take necessary action to defend our forces. But Pat, I believe that there was a third strike that killed six SDF Kurdish fighters. I think it the one you're referring to is the, the latter one that I highlighted. Uh, and that, and I am aware of those reports of Syria's, uh, Syria Democratic forces killed in that strike. Um, but I'd have to refer you to them to, to talk about it. was not on a base where U.S. forces were. It was in the vicinity of, of Green Village. Uh, Gene, your, your response to that and, and also how military leaders would um, measure success in these cases? Yeah, it's, it's a great question and perspective. Uh, I, I've been involved in strike planning uh, from the Pentagon as an advisor to the chairman on Tomahawk issues. Uh, while in the Joint Operations Division, uh, I've been an air warfare planner and strike planner uh, with the Eisenhower Battle Group, as a matter of fact, the group that's over there right now uh, in previous uh, deployments. Uh, battle damage assessment is, is something that's ongoing. Uh, we have tremendous intelligence and a tremendous capability to put ordnance on very precise targets. And great care is taken to make sure that there is not collateral damage. 
Uh, we all see uh, you know, what can happen when, when uh, uh, civilians are hurt or uh, some other collateral, uh, unintended collateral damage takes place. So a great effort is made to, to assure that doesn't happen. Uh, we rely on intelligence to determine where are the best uh, places to actually make a strike to achieve the desired effect. And it, it does take time to assess how did we do? How close did it come? Did we, did we miss by 10 feet? Did we miss by a mile? Uh, we, we don't uh, hit with 100% accuracy as hard as we try to do that. Uh, no other force in the world has this capability to, to be this precise. Uh, and and uh, to expect to take everything out on the first try, I, I think, is uh, unrealistic. Uh, I think the Pentagon has indicated, and, and the President, has, uh, National Security Team has indicated, there will be more of this, and, and that's because it, it does take time to see how did we do. Uh, you mentioned intelligence, Gene. What can you tell us about how uh, that targeting is done, given that there's no U.S. troops on the ground in Yemen? Yeah, I don't claim to have uh, uh, today's information on who's on the ground, uh, but traditionally we do have advanced forces uh, through some uh, combination of uh, agencies uh, that help us uh, collect information. We also have tremendous electronic uh, resources and satellite resources, and it's that fusion of information that helps present a pretty clear picture to the operational commanders. And you mentioned the Tomahawk missiles, which is what's being used against Houthi rebels. What can you tell us about those missiles? Um, how accurate are they? And how much does each one of them cost? They're, they're quite accurate, and, and that's because they're, they're based on a, a global uh, GPS system that, that has only uh, been perfected over, over decades. Uh, the uh, weapon is uh, continually upgraded, and uh, what it allows for is a, is a tremendous standoff capability such that we don't have to put uh, soldiers and sailors in immediate uh, risk. However, the, the strike planning is typically done as a coordinated effort with uh, air power as well. Uh, we have uh, tremendous capability on any carrier battle group, uh, but you also saw that you know the bomber that uh, you know flew 13,000 miles to spend 25 or 30 minutes over a target over the weekend. Uh, it's that integration of forces that helps make sure that uh, that will be accurate. As to cost, I think you raise a good point. Uh, you know, we are spending uh, some expensive weapons on. Uh, uh, organizations and uh, uh, types of weapons that coming at us that are uh, a much lesser threat. There are other ways to get at those weapons, uh, laser systems and microwave systems, for example. The, the Navy is bringing those to the fleet, but they're, they're not uh, forward deployed right now. Uh, but those, those would be uh, you know, closer in uh, last reaction sort of uh, efforts. Tomahawk is a, is a, a standoff weapon, more offensive and, and meant to uh, do things from a distance. And how much do, does each one cost? They're over a million dollars each. Uh, and, and don't forget, we have been firing standard missiles as well uh, at the ballistic missiles and at uh, some of the drones. We're also firing uh, guns. Uh, unfortunately, but, but quite uh, fortunately in the end, U.S. has gravely uh, engaged their close-in weapon system. That's, a, that's essentially a high-speed Gatling gun. That is a last-ditch uh, uh, method of taking out a target. That means that that target was within seconds of impact of that ship. Uh, fortunately, uh, it, it worked. Uh, and that, that uh, I think, uh, contributed to the, the need to, to uh, do something a little more forceful 
uh, in this past week. That was retired Navy Captain Gene Moran, now an adjunct professor of public policy at Florida State University. Hear more interviews from C-SPAN's Washington Journal program on our website, cspan.org, on the C-SPAN Now app, or on C-SPAN television, live every morning from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern Time.